Well, for the rest of the show today, we're going to be talking movies. And on the other end of the line, we have our movie expert, the one and only Daniel Mumby. Good afternoon, Daniel. Good afternoon to you, Richard. Very nice to speak to you again and be with you again. Yes. In the ether. Yes, about nine months, isn't it, since we last uh, since we last talked. I believe it is, yes. So uh, how have you been managing without me? Uh, I don't know. We, we, we cope somehow. We cope somehow. But you've been a busy boy. You've got a new job, a new home. You've got engaged. What do you do next? Well, um, saving up to get married, basically. And in the meantime, trying to see a lot of films. Hence why I'm here. Yeah. And what a year it's been. Um, I was thinking, what a, you know, it was a very rich period, sort of Christmas, New Year, and into the early, uh, early weeks of the year. So I was just sort of contemplating what my favourite films so far this year, and then we'll swap some notes. So uh, for me, it's uh, Theory of Everything by a country mile. I mean, uh, for he, Eddie just so much deserved his Oscar. He really did brilliant, brilliant acting. And then I guess the other one for me, uh, Second Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. I know some people don't think it's as good as the first one, but... Uh, I enjoyed it. It was one of those sort of feel-good, uh, be-happy-to-be-alive type films. And sometimes you do need cheering up, don't you, Daniel? I suppose so. I mean, am I allowed to sort of comment on your choices? You can indeed. Yeah, I mean, I my feeling about the theory of everything is I, I've always been a big fan of Eddie Redmayne as an actor. Ever since I saw him back in Savage Grace, which we covered when we were still doing the movie hour together, and everyone should see that because he's brilliant in that. I, I feel that he... It was his turn this year. No, I, I think Benedict Cumberbatch will get his chance soon enough because he's, he's not exactly going away quietly. Um, my personal feeling about the theory of everything is that I prefer the TV drama Hawking because I think it was a bit more weighty and a bit more sort of compelling, whereas I think the, I felt that they focused a bit too much on on the romance side of things rather than the actual complexity of what Hawking did. But, you know, it's, it's clearly hit a chord with a lot of people. Um, as for um, Marigold Hotel, you know, I think you always were a bigger fan of the first film than I was. There's part of me that kind of has a real dislike for that parochial British cinema, which treats India as that place over there, which we used to own. And But, you know, it's, it's clearly for a target audience more with, with your demographic in mind than mine. And, you know, it's not particularly harmful compared to a lot of the other stuff we have to put up with over the last 12 months are you so, saying are you saying i'm a bit older than you well only a couple of years or so <laughs> wouldn't you say yeah. okay so what's your favorite so far this year well my favorite by country mile is the imitation game um yeah. there's been an awful lot of um stuff talked about the historical accuracy of that film in terms of you know details of the relationship between Turing and joan clark and how the enigma code is broken and so on and so forth I think it's valid up to a point, but I think if you look at it in a self-contained way, it is a fantastically told story about about betrayal, about secrecy, about insecurity, and just a wonderful performance by Benedict Cumberbatch. You know, from the first second you see him on screen, you think, yep, I completely believe that. Um, the other highlight for me, which I only saw a few weeks ago, actually, because I've been catching up quite a lot with kind of last year's or Oscar films, was Selma, yeah. um, which was overlooked for a lot of categories, um, but really should have been included a lot of them. If you don't know the story, it's about the the Selma marches during the civil rights movement in the mid to late 60s. David Oluweyo does a fantastic performance as Martin Luther King. You know, he resists, you know, diving into just the, the bellowing voice and the cliches, sort of thing like that. There's also a very good performance in there by Tom Wilkinson as President Lyndon Johnson, who, again, sort of reining it in and showing how much pressure he's under. 
if you haven't seen it, and particularly if you're still reeling from the general election and angry at how our voting system works, go and watch Selma and you'll discover there was a lot of righteous anger back then too for very different reasons. Yeah, it is one film I would love to see. Um big fan of the work and struggle of uh, uh, Martin Luther King and of course uh, Newcastle the only university in Britain to uh, recognise him during his lifetime with an honorary degree back in 1967 so November 17 is going to be the 50th anniversary of that one I know it's going to be a very very big year for Newcastle as we've traditionally done had this uh, championing of uh, equality and justice so uh, film I really must go to see yeah i wouldn't have expected anything less from the university yes. you work for indeed so out of the things to round at the moment in the top 10 any you recommend that i do go and see well i think we should do our usual thing yeah. and go through them in reverse order so, so at number actually, 10 we've got the falling yeah this is an interesting low budget british offering um centers around two british schoolgirls in the late 60s who are beginning to explore their sexuality so if you're familiar with peter jackson's work before lord of the rings you'll are instantly started to think of heavenly creatures, but without the murder. Um, a couple of other interesting things about this: it has a soundtrack by Tracy Thorne, she of you know massive attack in the late in the mid to late nineties, and it's directed by Carol Morley, who previously did a really interesting documentary called Dreams of a Life, which was about this woman called Joyce Carol Vincent, who was found dead in her London flat three years after she'd actually passed away, and it was about you know how isolated people can become in modern society and just how. No, it was such a really tragic story. I think that there are problems with the falling in terms of you know how much plot it has to deal with, but we should always support low-budget British cinema because they, you know, directors like Carol Morley are going to be the future of our filmscape. So go see it. And some big critical acclaim for that one, isn't there? As there yeah, is absolutely. for the Duff at number nine. Yeah, Duff meaning designated ugly fat friend. If you hadn't looked it up, um, when I first heard about this, it's a teen comedy. I thought it was going to be kind of cheap, nasty, derivative. But actually, it does have quite a bit of brains behind it, and the main performance is fine. I mean, I don't think it's up there with the likes of Easy A or Mean Girls, but it will do okay. And it's clearly, again, striking a chord with its target audience. Now we have two films at number eight and number seven, which don't get quite such good uh, critical claims. So let's start with Get Hard at number eight. Yeah, I and mean, Will Ferrell continues to prove that he's much better at gurning than being funny. I like Kevin Hart as a comedian. Now, I saw him on the uh, the recent roast of um, Justin Bieber on Comedy Central, and he was very good there. But he is kind of playing second fiddle here. And like a lot of Will Ferrell stuff, it's the kind of story that if you'd made it in the 70s and 80s, it would have been just about okay. But here it feels very kind of retrograde and lazy, frankly, like a lot of his stuff. So number seven, uh, I guess another one you're not going to be too keen on, Child 44. This is more disappointing for me because, uh, no, I really like Tom Hardy and I'm a big fan of the conspiracy thriller genre. No, I like the idea of making a film about people disappearing under the rule of Stalin. You know, I'm a big fan of Robert Harris's thrillers like Archangel and so forth, which, which really kind of get under the, the surface of that kind of political subterfuge. And it's produced by Ridley Scott, who, granted, has has been a bit up and down recently, but he has got a good eye for other talent. The problem is that it's directed by Daniel Espinosa, who previously made Safe House, and I don't think he's good enough as a director to kind of marshal the material, and eventually you become more focused on the slightly dodgy Russian accents than the story, and that's a bit of a shame. Right, an interesting title at number six, the SpongeBob movie, Sponge Out of Water. Yeah. I guess that's probably an animation. 
Yes, it's the second film based on the uh, popular animated series SpongeBob SquarePants. The last film came out about 11 years ago. It's been around for absolutely ages, and clearly the fans have embraced it. For me, the most appealing thing about it is that it marks the return of Antonio Banderas to children's films, because... You know, back 10 years ago, um, you think of Banderas you know, in the Spy Kids films and the later series of Shrek. You know, it's clearly something he's very good at. And then he went off for a period to do kind of more grown-up stuff like The Skin I Live In, which is really good. I mean, if you miss the TV series like me, I think you will get less out of it. But out of all the stuff in the top 10, it's the one I would take my children to see if I had children. There we are. And, yeah, I imagine uh, Banderas will be brilliant. He, is just, he was just so good in the Shrek films, wasn't he? It was great to uh, to watch. Rather different theme to the number five one, Woman in Gold. Yeah, again, this, this is one of those that should have been better than it is. The big problem here is not with the direction. It's the kind of imbalance at the top of the bill. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a brilliant actress in the form of Helen Mirren, whom we're both big fans of. Yes, um, indeed. But she's going up against Ryan Reynolds, who is an absolutely massive lightweight. I really don't understand how he's had a half of the success that he has. I mean, the story here, again, is quite interesting. You know, it's about recovering a painting from Austria that was taken over by the Nazis. So there's, there's kind of hints of the monuments men in there, and it, it's you no know, kind of heart in the right place. But it's just, you look at Helen Mirren, and you think, I absolutely believe who the character is. And then you look at Ryan Reynolds, and you go, no, you're just Ryan Reynolds wearing some glasses. Why are you here? Right, back to animations for number four. And this is a bit of a who's who on the uh, voiceovers, isn't it? Rihanna, Jennifer Lopez, Steve Martin. It's called Home. Yeah, and it's pretty disposable. I mean, despite the fact that you've got all those names and Jim Parsons from the Big Bang theory, you know, it's, it is very derivative in terms of its plot. I mean, all, there's all manner of stuff from E.T. and Closing Counters that they've thrown in there. The animation is a bit ropey in places. I mean, like I say, it, it's not too harmful in the long run but if you were going to take your children to the cinema this weekend or anytime next week go and see spongebob instead and if you've seen it already go again why not okay number three my wife's been to see this one loves it um it's uh, kenneth branner's latest uh, um production it's cinderella yeah and it is really good to see a kenneth branner production doing well because there was a long period in the noughties when he was making some really interesting films that got seen by absolutely nobody um, I think he's someone who really understands uh, the language of cinema and how to create a sense of wonder and amazement, even when you're doing something which is you know, a very tight-knit genre piece. I think this is perhaps the most successful period work that he's done since his version of Hamlet, which I know is four hours long, but I still think it's absolutely amazing. It is easier to live with as well in terms of its gender politics than the original Disney version. If you've not seen the Disney version for a while... Go back and look at it, because although it's really, really pretty, there are elements of how the women are characterized in that which are very of the time and rather difficult to justify, whereas this, you have female characters that are allowed to develop, that are thinking for themselves, and actually do drive the plot, rather than just being things that happen to the men. So go and see it. Support Kenneth Branagh, because he is a brilliant director. And certainly uh, Yvonne's recommendation of the week, that one. Okay, number two, Furious 7. Now, my fiancé is a huge fan of the Fast and Furious series, while I must confess that I've not seen any of them all the way through. The general consensus among the fans seems to be that you got through the first four films and then Fast Five a few years ago was a big return to form because it didn't take itself quite so seriously. And they've managed to kind of sustain that since then. The big thing with this film, of course, is that it's, it's overshadowed by the tragic death of Paul Walker, who I think died midway through production of this, so they've found a way of of kind of writing him out very tenderly. And I'm sure if you're a fan of the series, you'll consider it a fitting tribute. I mean, 
I can take or leave the series, but I gather that it's pretty good. And then at number one, The Avengers Age of Ultron. Now, I saw the first Avengers film when it came out about three years ago, and it was pretty much what I expected, because it... With all the Marvel films that have been coming out the previous few years, you know that the Avengers was the thing they were always building towards. It was the tent pole to end all tent poles. And it was ridiculous in places and you know, not as weighty as a lot of the DC stuff that we had around the same time. And I will always maintain The Dark Knight Rises is a better film, even though a lot of people would say that's idiotic. Um, here, it's kind of more of the same. You've got a surprisingly decent amount of character development. It's really good fun. I don't think you'll necessarily remember it a few years down the line, anything like as fondly as you will the Christopher Nolan Batman films. But, you know, it's if you want your superhero fix, you will get a lot more out of this than you would out of something like Green Lantern from a few years ago, largely because I suppose it doesn't have Ryan Reynolds in it. OK, so it's quite, um, quite a mix there, isn't there, of, of stuff for younger, older uh, animations, live action. So what's your film of the week out of that lot? Out of all those ten, I would go with Cinderella. I mean, I, I am a bit of a branophile, and you know, it does annoy a lot of people when I go on and on about him, but he is a brilliant director. And it's good to see, you know, when, when this whole kind of wave of live-action remakes of old Disney films was announced, and we had Maleficent, which was a bit hit and miss, despite the presence of Angelina de Jolie and as perfect casting as Maleficent, this shows that it's not just a marketing exercise and you can actually do something interesting with those stories still. And Daniel, we've only got nine minutes to do the films! Yeah, we always run out of time, don't we? But, uh, Shall we yeah, start with we Maggie? Can, yeah, I think we can fit three in. So, because this is going to be a more sporadic slot than usual, I'm going to stagger the, my recommendations as in films that are coming out over the next two or three weeks, and the one that you need to see this week is Maggie. Um, do you remember back in the 90s when Sylvester Stallone made a film called Copland? I think I remember it. I don't think I saw it. But then yeah. Sylvester Stallone's not really my cup of tea. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Copland was that after years of doing lots of, you know, all the Rocky films, all the Rambo films, and increasingly becoming a bit of a has-been, Copland was billed as Sylvester Stallone's kind of dramatic rebirth, and it, it did a fair, fairly well with the critics. This is kind of similar insofar as it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, continuing to show up on the screen. And most of the time so far, he's been parodying himself in you know, prison break style films and so forth. But this is a kind of dramatic zombie film. The story uh, is set in a kind of post-apocalyptic world in which you know, there's a zombie plague, everyone's becoming infected. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a father whose daughter, played by I think Abigail Breslin, who was in uh, Little Miss Sunshine all those years ago, has become infected by the disease and is slowly turning into a zombie. And rather than do the, the kind of natural thing in zombie films, which is to, you know, blow her to pieces to save her he stays by her side and you no know, sees her through the disease and it's it's actually a surprisingly tender offering it's directed by henry hobson who's a very good independent filmmaker you know it was very highly acclaimed when it played at the tribeca film festival which is the one that uh, robert de niro is closely associated with and he does know a thing or two about spotting independent talent I mean, ultimately, it is a kind of genre piece. So, if you're well versed with the with the conventions of zombie movies, if you, you know, if you sort of have been uh, born out of the George Romero trilogy from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, then you'll you'll understand where the plot is going pretty early on. But if you're if you're kind of new to the zombie genre, or you want something that has a slightly more interesting perspective on the whole people wandering around going and eating brains then this is actually quite a nice offering i don't think it's perfect by any means but it's uh, it's an example of how even in a genre which you think has been done to death 
you just twist it ever so slightly and you've got yourself a nice little drama. That sounds your sort of film, Daniel. Yeah, I think it's... Ultimately, it's a zombie film that's not about zombies. It's about the relationship between a father and his daughter. And if you can look beyond the kind of the superficial gore, then it's actually quite tender and sweet. Yeah. I suspect you may quite like the next one we're going to preview, Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah, now this is taking us back a little bit, because when we were doing the movie... Just a little. Yes. um, We reviewed the first two Mad Max films. You know, if you are not familiar with the series... Mad Max was a fantastic series of punk westerns from the late 70s, early 80s, which effectively made Mel Gibson a star long before he went a bit nuts and started making rather controversial comments, which we won't reiterate here. And, you know, the feeling I had was the first two Mad Max films were absolutely great. The third one, which was, no, it was, half of it was good, half of it was essentially a rehashing of Peter Pan, but in a desert with fetish gear. So, never mind. This one is the first Mad Max film since 1985. It sees George Miller returning to the director's chair after making the two Happy Feet films. And, fittingly enough, we were talking about Tom Hardy earlier in the show, he steps into the Mel Gibson role because Gibson's, depending on your opinion, either too old or just box office poison, probably both. And the story is that he is playing Mad Max. He's the road warrior. He is approached by a lady called Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron, who is a terrific actress. Um, She is part of a group called the Five Wives who need to cross a really dangerous uh, stretch of desert, and they basically ask Max to help them. I mean... I was quite trepidatious about this when I heard because I thought, well, it's been ages since the Mad Max films. They are a product of their time in terms of the circumstances under which they were made and the look of them and so forth. And I was worried that it would just be kind of empty, brainless effects. But the more I read about it, the more I think, actually, this could be a real return to form. And actually, this could have been what the third one always should have been in terms of deepening the universe of Mad Max. Um, George Miller has given a lot of interviews saying that he wanted to make a film uh, which could be understood anywhere without subtitles. He wanted to do something that was as much practical effects as as possible. He didn't want to do any digital stuff. And the way the film looks is kind of a slightly more polished version of the originals in the sense that it's, it's stripped down, it's rugged, it's a really sort of bleak, pessimistic vision of the future. And it does have a little bit of, you know, a kernel of substance in terms of, our dwindling supply of resources and how scarcity brings out the worst in humanity or or in some cases the best. I think if you are trying to introduce someone to the Mad Max series for the first time and they're not keen on Mel Gibson just because of all his later work, which they'll be more familiar with, this is actually a very good way to get them into the series. And if you're a fan of the series like I am, I think you'll go in and either have a really good nostalgia trip or think, you know what, if they do end up making any more... I'm okay with that because this is pretty good fun. And that hits the cinemas next week. Yes, it and, does. And then the week after, and our final film to look at today is Tomorrowland. Yes, which is a, a sci-fi mystery thriller, so I'm already sold on it. It's directed by Brad Bird, who started off his career working for Pixar, made things like The Incredibles and Ratatouille, and then uh, went into live action and made Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which many people consider the best Mission Impossible film. Um, the story this time is that you have um, a gentleman by the name of... Uh, he's played by George Clooney, I beg your pardon. It's by the name of Frank Walker, who is a grizzled inventor, and he and a character called Casey, played by Britt Robertson, travel to a space, in, a place in space and time called Tomorrowland where their actions directly affect the world around them. So 
you know, it's a kind of classic Doctor Who setup of, you know, you land on a strange planet, the, the rules are very, very different, there's all kind of meddling around with time and space, but eventually everyone's okay. My one reservation about this film is it's scripted by Damon Lindelof, who is the guy who also wrote um, most of the stuff on Prometheus. And the thing about Lindelof is that he, he often starts off with a very nice concept, and then he can't, he, he can't sort of hold it together and everything ends up unraveling. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because of the fact that Brad Bird's been working closely on him uh, with the story. There's also a big supporting role for Hugh Laurie in it, and that is never a bad thing. So, you know, it's, it sounds like a really sort of solid sci-fi setup. It's not going to be a patch on anything like Dark City, which if you haven't seen, go and see Dark City. It's an amazing film. Very good performance by Jennifer Connelly. And, you know, George Clooney continuing to sort of hold his own as a slightly older leading man. And it, it does look like an enjoyable romp. I know, like I say, it's not on a patch of Dark City, but it's going to be okay. Thanks. Sounds really interesting. So thanks very much for joining us today, Daniel. Um, My pleasure. Will you come back in a couple of weeks' time? I think we shall, yes. I mean, we're, we're still kind of ironing out exactly how this new format's going to work, but uh, I will keep you all posted via my Twitter feed, which is at Movies, and obviously keep an eye out on the Lionheart website as well. I shall be yeah. back very soon. And there will be a potted version of this coming up on our website if you missed any of the advice that Daniel's been giving. So let me just finally tell everybody about what's on the show next week because it's a busy, busy show next week. Uh, first of all, Anik Theatre Club will be coming to the Playhouse with its production of Brastoff, uh, featuring the Ellington Colliery Band so we'll be previewing that one I'm off to Amble because I'm going to have a look at the new Harbour Village and also previewing the Puffin Festival which will be coming up in two weeks time in Amble and I'm going to be meeting the one and only Colin Heathcote formerly of this parish many years ago who has just written a book on the perils and fun of being a local newspaper reporter sort of comes full circle to you doesn't it Daniel? Yes, give me another 40 years and I'll produce the sequel. 